first table of the law. I think it was Einstein that said, you only truly understand something when you can explain it in its most simple terms. It's fair enough. We like it when complex things are made simple. We can understand them. Out of complexity, we long for simplicity. Boil it down already. What's the point? I just need to know what I need to know. And there's value in making the, the plain things the main things and the main things the plain things, as they say. But there's also danger in oversimplification, I think you'll agree. So there's two pieces of wisdom there. It has to be applied. We don't want to be like the person who sees the picture but never desires to go to the canyon. Or watches the movie but never cares much about the book. Or buys the fresh air candle but doesn't go outside after a spring rain to smell that fresh air. You get the picture. A different way of going about this same sort of theme is cliff notes. And I don't think they were made by a guy named Cliff. I don't really know the origins of cliff notes, but I must admit I've utilized Cliff's notes in my time. Cliff notes, for those of you that don't know what they are, it's a, it's a summary of a book, and usually a, a book that's required for some kind of reading for an educational program or whatnot. And in theory, the Cliff Note book summary can help you understand the book enough in a pinch to be able to pass a test or, or give basic cursory knowledge of a, of, a, of a material if you're in a pinch. But uh, kids, don't tell your mom I told you that. Be upset with me probably for that. But really, the Cliff Notes are not bad. Uh, summaries are good. If rightly understood, if put in the right place, a summary is a good thing to introduce a person to what otherwise might be difficult material to help a confused person understand what's most important. If you were to come to me in my office and have a, you had a serious Bible question, you would not want me to tell you everything I could possibly say about the answer to that question. You would want me to say something to you that would be apt, that would be a summary, that you could understand, and that you could go into further study if it would be helpful to you to go into further study. And you could flip that on me and you could, you could say something like that if somebody came to you what you do and ask you a question, summaries can be good. Some old books that are harder reading in terms of theology have been made more useful by little introductions to the chapters within those worthy books. I think of our current men's study, Salvation in Full Color. One of the reasons that that book has been made more accessible, a 20 Great Awakening sermons that we've been studying during our men's breakfast, is because the editor of that volume, Richard Owen Roberts, includes a one-page biography of the author and brief summary of his classic work. And so that, that one page is worth the price of the book. It's like gold because you read that and then all of a sudden, okay, well, I feel like I have my moorings for what's going on with this chapter I'm about to read that is, people have clearly told me it's worthwhile, but I, I don't know if I, can get, if I can get into the meaning of it very quickly. So summaries are good in that way. But summaries are bad if you think summaries give you the whole thing. If, if you're dismissive of the larger work, if you stop at the one-page overview, summaries are only good enough if the, if the, are only good if the fuller thing is valued and included in the overall calculus. And in our subject matter today, the fuller thing is emphatically not lacking. The fuller thing is emphatically worth your time. So wh what is the fuller thing? Well, let's stop it with all the, the innuendo. It's the Ten Commandments. The fuller thing is the Ten Commandments. It comes to us in Exodus 20. 
The summary of the thing is Jesus' answer to the lawyer's trick question in Matthew 22. Uh, He answers a questioner about what the most important matter of the law of Moses is, and Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all. All you got. Jesus says, you should love the Lord your God with all. It's Matthew 22, 37. Love the Lord your God with everything you got, all your heart, soul, and mind. And by way of spoiler alerts, we know this law-keeping is impossible in our fallen human condition. But bracket that for the time being. And let's take the words on balance. There remains an oughtness to law-keeping. We ought to love the Lord with all we've got. Oughtn't we? But we need to flesh out that summary. Jesus was summarizing with that phrase, love the Lord your God with all you got. He was summarizing the first four of the Ten Commandments. And those commandments are found in the text that we're looking at today and examining today. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. So Jesus was 1,500 years later referencing God's speak on Mount Sinai from Exodus 20. And we're 3,500 years later as we, as we sit here today considering the first four commandments in light of the fuller revelation of the Lord. And this week, we're going to look at what's called the first table of the law in verses 1 to 11. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the second table of the law, which is verses 12 to 21. The second is horizontal, how we treat one another. The first is vertical, how we interact with God. But the whole list is brilliantly God-centered. As one said, listen for thoughts and words and deeds in this first table, and then you'll flip it around. You'll be able to hear deeds and words and thoughts in the second table. And in listening for thoughts and words and deeds, you'll hear commandments one and two as thoughts, commandment three as words, and commandment four as deeds. And so as we read, listen for that flow of thoughts, words, and deeds as we seek today to love the Lord our God with all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our deeds because he first loved us. Let's again ask God's help on this sermon before we read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, our hearts and minds are busied with so many things. We're so concerned. We need to hear from you today. We, we need your voice to penetrate the many voices from within and from without that we have that we might be able to be more faithful and fulfilled in you. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace unto all who hear. 
So let's just look at the verses 2 to 6 right now. Consider loving the Lord your God with all your thoughts. The language of verse 2 is intentionally parallel with the language given toward Abraham in Genesis 15, 7, when Abraham's promise includes the Lord saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God passes between the pieces and ratifies a covenant with Abraham by which he predicted 400 years of Egyptian slavery for his people. And now after all those trials, here we are with a fresh promise that's rooted in something former. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What else but the promises of God to us across time would fortify us to remain steady, steadfast under trial? I wonder if you're going through a trial right now. I wonder if you've considered the fact that there were these hundreds of years where God was very much still God, and yet the people were entrapped in a predicted slavery. Do you love him? Is he any less him in the dark day than in the bright? God is not a tempter, the devil is. But God allows us to go through tests. And his people here went through the test of slavery. Work without rest. Work without worship. The forgottenness of the moral law is apparent as it's being restated and expanded and explained for his people constituted here at the foot of Mount Sinai. But God allows us to be tested. He gives us an opportunity for a fresh start from time to time. Here, God constitutes His people at Sinai, and He does so speaking directly to them, which is kind of odd when you think about where we've been in Exodus. After all this, Moses getting his calisthenics done, going up and down the mountain, trying to mediate for them, talk to them, mediate for them, and talk to them. And now, all of a sudden, God's just going to let loose and speak in a manner which they're just going to hear Him audibly. Wow. I mean, it's magnificent when you think about it. And scary, they don't want any more of it afterward. They're like, hey, you talk to us for him. I don't, yeah, I don't want to hear that anymore. Afterward, they're, they're rightly scared, as any God encounter is, is scary. God is magnificent and huge. And God speaks in their hearing, and he says to them, right here, just as he said to Abraham, I'm the one that brought you out. Just as I brought Abraham out from Ur, to give a land. I bring you out from Egypt to give you a land. I am your deliverer. I'm God. You once were enslaved. Now I'm going to teach you how to live as a free people. Uh, to quote one author, don't commit a free people suicide. Live freely based on my moral law. Don't ignore my moral law. A reflection of my very character. We're doing so much of this right now, aren't we? So much ignoring of God's moral law. And to a certain extent, we should expect it from folks that don't acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, right? 
But for ourselves, we want to strive for holiness. We want to pursue God on God's terms. We want to seek to live out God's moral law. We never want to call what is good evil and evil good, now do we? We can't celebrate that. Ours is to love God with our very desires and to wage war against even immoral thoughts. For he delivers first, and then he gives these people their moral law. The Lord your God acted to deliver them and then reminded them of their moral responsibilities to him. Think of God as the one and only. There's none other besides him, the commandment says. He is the only God. Leave no room in your thinking for rival gods, which are no gods at all. They're fake. There are no gods besides him or before him. Ours is a day when thoughts lead us to sink up all kinds of deities into one and justify in our mind that God is the best among many or one among many. This is an affront to the glory of God who saved you. Saved people must worship the one true God and think of him as such. This is Orthodox Christianity. The second commandment is make not for yourself any carved or graven image. This is becoming an issue with the people in almost no time after they get the commandments of God. They read forward in Exodus and we'll get there, Lord willing. In Exodus 32, they're creating a golden calf. And this kind of idolatry is repugnant to God. And it's a, people die. It's a bloodbath. Folks are separated. It's terrible. Matthew Henry says that we must not make any picture of deity for our worship, but also not have non-prescribed human inventions in the worship of our God. Our worship of God is to be our expression of love to Him. We must therefore worship God God's way. So we don't prefer, prefer pictures God can't be imaged other than the fact that we're created in the image of God. The Word is worth a thousand pictures. Until that day when we see that one true face, idolatry takes on many forms and facets, and there's no time to be exhaustive in explaining this command. However, I think one 17th century Puritan minister shows us the way. Thomas Vincent wrote this, The first commandment, no other gods, has respect to the object of worship, The second commandment, no carved images, has respect to the means of worship. And we shall see now that the third commandment has respect to the manner of worship and the fourth to the time in which we are to worship. So first, love the Lord your God with all your thoughts. This constitutes verses 2 to 6. And then second, love the Lord your God with all your words. Look just simply at verse 7 now. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Take that verse 7 right there. The name of the Lord in vain. If our first point was about thoughts, then this is about words, about what we say, about taking the name in vain. And I skipped over some stuff in verses 6 and 7, admittedly, that I might want to mention here. The way we worship has generational consequences. Hatred of God can reach through generations. But God knows how to love through thousands. His hesed, his loving kindness, reaches and reaches and reaches and reaches. And it shines over his people. 
Look at how God's love is graded in the numbers of generations mentioned in these very verses. So we are to reflect God's own character when we love him well with our words. What we say about God matters. They say that we have two ears and one mouth and we should listen twice as much as we speak, or at least that's what my mom used to say. I think there's wisdom in it. The truth of the matter is we need to listen for what God is like and then we need to reflect God rightly when we speak. In this text that we just read, God addresses his people audibly, unexpectedly, constituting them, sharing how they represent his name, and sharing that how they represent his name matters. And the New Testament tells us that no unwholesome talk should come out of our mouths, but only that which is good and useful for edifying that it might administer grace and to the hearers. But I'm not convinced that this particular commandment is mostly about cursing or wholesome talk. Jesus identifies this command as about oaths or vows. I sat in Sunday school this morning, and we were working through the Baptist confession, in particular the teacher was teaching about oaths and vows toward the end. It's a worthy read for this. You can see teaching about oaths and vows in that confession. In a nutshell, as Scripture says, our yeses must be yes and our noes must be no. We must speak in a manner that is reliable. People should be able to take you at your word. We should not specialize in word salads, embellishments, lovely batches of words. Our speech should be truthful and gracious. And how we speak of God in corporate worship, well, that's a special kind of reverend. We're talking about the Holy One. He's our God. It might be worth you looking at your Bible to see verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, well, at the expense of oversimplification, just consider verse 1. And God spoke words, all these words. That brings gravity to this commandment, doesn't it? Words are important in God's economy, in how He interacts with His people. Sometimes the Ten Commandments are referred to as ten words. God spoke all these words. When God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, God spoke, and it was. If you have your print Bible, put your finger where we're at in Exodus and look back at the very first page of the Bible. Look at Genesis 1. In terms of loving the Lord your God with all your words, consider a different time in creation when he spoke similarly. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Day one. If you look ahead on that page to verse 6, And God said, dot, 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 and the expanse of heaven was so. Day two. Look at verse 9. And God said, let the dry land earth appear, and it was so. Fruits and veggies, day three. Look at verse 14. And God said, make the stars. It was so. It was good, day four. Verse 20. And God said, let's have birds and fish, fishies, day five, good. Look at Genesis 1.24. And God said, let there be animals. Verse 26. Man in our image, give them dominion, male and female, he created them. 
And God said to man some things. Verse 28, God said. And God said, verse 30, day six. And it was good. Listen, the reason why what you say matters so much is there's power of life and death in the tongue. The book of James picks up on this, that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship steering civilization to crash or to shore. In our worship, a word is worth, the word rather, is worth a thousand pictures. And our online pictures never make up for our use of words. What we say and what we mean matters. Our love for God compels us to represent God's name rightly with our words and never to use His name in vain or to speak of His name in a flippant manner. We don't want to misrepresent God, and when we do, we come to Him with repentant hearts. We ask that He might show us the way. Genesis 1 is parallel with Exodus 20 in a right manner. Ten times in Genesis 1 you have, and God said. And we have ten spoken commands from God in Exodus 20. We tend to think of the creation of the world out of nothing as more miraculous than God redeeming people from rank rebellion against himself, but it really isn't at all. God's working a miracle both ways, in creation and in redemption. Our next commandment in Exodus is rooted both in creation, in Exodus 20, and it's talked about in terms of redemption in Deuteronomy 5. It has to do with deeds. It has to do with when we worship. So our third point today, and then a few implications toward the end. After we've talked now about loving the Lord your God with all of your thoughts and also as well as with your words, now let's talk about with deeds, particularly how it relates to worship. If you still have your finger in Genesis 1, and I hope you do, it gives way to Genesis 2 with these three verses. And they are uniquely situated to make a point. It says, Thus... The heavens and the earth were finished, so that was all the work of creation, and the, all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. End quote. Genesis 2, 1-3. Do not think that God was tired. God is God. He never grows weary. God was setting a pattern to form an imperative for us. You need to do this. God was instead setting this pattern, or was rather than setting it for himself, he was setting it for his people. A cycle of work and rest. Out of every week, you rest a day and you work six days. This work-rest cycle is what the fourth commandment is picking up on. So jump back over to Exodus 20, 8 to 11, and hear how parallel it sounds. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, do, you shall, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When you look in Exodus 20, 
the fourth commandment is the first one that's stated in the positive. You should not have other gods before you. You should not make yourself a carved image. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Not, 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 not. And then here we come. Remember. Remember. This moral command for Sabbath keeping does not begin with thou shalt not or you shall not have, but begins with a simple word, remember. Which overwhelmingly implies in its usage in the Old Testament that there's something to remember. It's looking back. The Sabbath precept was not new to the Israelites. It simply emphasized anew. As with behavioral commands of gender and marriage and family and childbearing, here, the divine author leads the writer to base ethics on creation, base how we behave on something from creation. Rich Barcelos notes at length about this. He says, the ethical implications of God's example in working six days and then resting transcends cultures and covenants. Transcends cultures and covenants. We've seen it earlier in Exodus 2, haven't we? Like in chapter 16. Exodus 16, 20. Even Old Testament prophecy and the Sabbath under the initiated new covenant in Christ's blood provides evidence for the gift of this moral command. Exodus 20 provides evidence that the Sabbath predates Sinai, where we are at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, and the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus 20, God incorporates creational institutions in other commands, not just Sabbath, but as we've mentioned, labor and marriage. And he brings that into Israel's covenant life, not out of thin air, but in the context of creation. Israel's covenantal Sabbath has the basis of creation, but also of redemption, Genesis and Exodus. And then looking forward, the prophets assume the Sabbath of the Mosaic Covenant in their writings with reference to the future. They predict the abolition of Israel's feast days and new moons and Sabbaths under the inaugurated New Covenant. They also hold out the prospect of a Sabbath in the Messianic era in the time of the Messiah. And they utilize old covenant forms of worship to depict the worship of the New Covenant people of God in the future. That's us. And that's what these forms look like as we await further revelation in the form of fulfillment, which we have now in the New Testament, where continuity as well as discontinuity with the covenant of Moses is seen. Now, what does all that really mean? Well, continuity and discontinuity is critical to thinking about this command. When we think about God's unfolding plan in the Bible, we see discontinuity in the church's ordinances to Israel, but continuity in the church's moral law to Israel. Jesus does not negate the first table of the law, but affirms it in himself when he says, love the Lord your God with your all, with everything you've got. We see discontinuity in the church's Sabbath day to Israel's, but continuity in the church's Sabbath pattern to Israel's. That is, the church's Sabbath day to Israel's is at the top of the week. Our pattern of six days work and one day of rest needed is the same. It's just that in the new creation, the pattern is shifted from work before you rest to rest before you work. That's a gospel statement indeed, isn't it? The first day of our week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, shouts with every other fiber of fuller revelation that Sabbath, that salvation rather, is by grace alone, that grace precedes works, that Christ's resurrection on Sunday provides all the framing we need to start our week and worship Him rightly. The temptation here as we talk about the moral law and the ongoing implications of it is to get all kinds of specific but I think that would be to go too far, too fast. And it might even be an adventure in us missing the point as a congregation. Remember, after all, Mark 2 says, 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if you need to get your ox or your car out of a ditch today, you have my permission to do so. Remember the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The Sabbath moral command was and is a gift. It is a gift to an formerly enslaved and oppressed people to take a break, to take a breath, and to rest, and to learn how to so structure their lives on the other six days as to be fruitful and multiply and productive. The Sabbath was even to treat sojourners in their midst and every class of citizen to a taste of what it would be like to be God's covenant people. Far from a badge of honor to never rest, the Lord grants rest to those whom He loves. Now, doesn't He? And the Lord grants work to those He loves too. Work like marriage is a pre-political, creational good. That's what the dominion mandate was about. I read this week a a sad statistic that says that we have much more imaging of our Lord to do in our society. I read that Something like one in eight working-aged men are no longer looking for work. And I don't know. I mean, I don't even know where I saw the statistic. Even if that's not right. I mean, I'm just saying, what what a difficult thing because work is a dignified good. And as the people of God, oh, there was one other part of the statistic. It said that of those that have stopped looking for work, they, they self-report through statistical surveys an average of 2,000 hours a year looking at screens. So that's replacing the entire work week with images. I read another ominous statistic about teenagers this week, too, with regard to screens, but I, I don't just want to take shots at media and take shots. That's not the point of this. I'm not trying to poke at men either that either aren't trained to work or, or don't care to work or whose worldview makes them dis micros, dirty jobs, or whatever ailment they may have. I'm just simply saying we have something to show them as the people of God. We have something to show them. Christians witness well when they worship and rest on Sunday and get their normal work done on the other days. Now there are implications for this. I'll share a few. Uh, our friend John DeVito shared the following notes from his own Baptist catechism teachings for his family on the first table of law. He said this, I thought it was really helpful. Uh, the first four commandments have the following relationship to worship. First one, who. Second one, how. Third one, what. And the fourth one, when. That kind of gets at the first four commandments, the first table of the law. I think probably the fourth one, when, is the most positive and most neglected. Most positive and most neglected. Philip Ryken, in his 52nd sermon from Exodus, so if you're thinking Pastor Kurt and I are slow walking it, think again. 52 sermons at this point in Exodus, and he's talking about the Sabbath. I don't think we're near to that. He said, our problem is that when we find it so hard to take genuine delight in the sanctified pleasures of God, we are willing to spend some time worshiping Him, but we feel like we need a break to go right back to the world's lesser pleasures. But the more we learn to delight in God, the more willing we are to keep his day holy. Now that gets ahead of a lot of practical questions like, you know, can, I, can I think it? Can I play it? Can I do it? Can I watch it? Doesn't it? C.S. Lewis argued the same way in his book, The Weight of Glory, when he wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Lord gives us rest and worship on day one. He gives us grace. He offers us ordinary means of grace to encourage us, and we need it. We need it in a dry and thirsty land. Loving God with all your thoughts and words become visible in the deeds of the Lord's day. Remember it. Keep it holy. We are a kingdom of priests. The first four commandments are about priestly duties. We represent and we worship Yahweh, and there's weight to it. He is jealous, or it might be also said of jealous. Zealous is a good way of explaining his jealousness for you. He's zealous for you. He's passionate for you, all of you. Man, woman, boy, child, girl, unemployed, semi-happy, workaholic, single, married, mundane. All of you. All of you in Christ, He is zealous for you. And so this is for you. Think, Christian, of your opportunity here in showing the world the Lord by living your love for the Lord in this first table of the law. God's zealousness for you has a positive connotation. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 for it. Nahum 1, 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes the vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His Enemies. Enemies. What is it that you have escaped because you are Christ's, the Lord's wrath? What is it that you have because of the Lord's gift of salvation to you? You have His zealousness placed on you, His jealousy for you, His good divine jealousy, not in a bad way, but in a good way. And so it's his care for you. And these moral commands reflect his care and concern for you. Love God back like this. Reflect his good character like this. By way of implications, think of it a different way. There was one pastor interviewing another pastor about evangelism or about sharing the gospel. And the pastor asked, one, one of the, the interviewer asked this question of the other pastor. He said, the chief thing you pray as you think about evangelism and specific people is the conviction of sin in their lives. That really stuck with me. Why do you pray when you're praying for the conversion of another person? Why do you pray for the conviction of sin in their lives? His answer is profoundly based in the Ten Commandments. Listen to what he said. He said, because if we talk to people about Jesus and they don't understand themselves to have any need for a Savior, then other than them hearing from us about someone we admire in Jesus, what we're saying doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Some of you have heard of Ray Comfort, the way of the master. He is a New Zealand brother, a tireless evangelist. He specializes on using the Ten Commandments with non-Christians as a way to help them see their own sinfulness. You can go online and watch him doing this in countless interviews with people at local colleges. I don't think you have to do evangelism that way, but it is an example of you, of how you need the law's conviction before the gospel sounds like the good news that it is. The moral law is critical to sharing the gospel. 
Because the law, as Galatians describes it, is a tutor or a schoolmaster unto salvation. It prepares the person to understand their great need. There's an oughtness to the law that we should not run past. It's important for evangelism, for sharing the gospel. And if you're an unbeliever here in my hearing, before we go eat lunch together, I hope you stay and eat lunch with us and talk, I want to talk to you about the table of the Lord and eternal life and the, the wedding feast of the Lamb and being invited to eternity. That's a far more important prize even than the good food we're about to eat. Unbeliever, you are in the Nahum sense I just read, an enemy of God under His wrath. You've not kept the Ten Commandments. There's no way. Even if you think that you might have somehow in deeds, which I sort of doubt, you probably failed at the level of words and you certainly failed at the level of thoughts. That's the reason the message behind the rich young ruler, the parable in the New Testament. You've, you've utterly failed in your thoughts. Even a fairly good man's attempts to perfectly keep the law in that rich young ruler, it, it, he, he didn't. The difference between us and you is that we aren't trusting in our ability to keep the law good enough. We've long since accepted our guilt as breakers of the law. Bless you, buddy. And so our trust is not in our ability to keep the law, but in the lawgivers having kept the law on our behalf. John Bunyan, the great author of Pilgrim's Progress, said it better than I can. He said, I saw in God's word, in the law, that I needed perfect righteousness to present me without fault before God. And this righteousness was nowhere to be found but in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the place you find it. You never find it in yourself. You must come into contact with God's demands on you. The oughtness of the law. That then your trust might be placed not in yourself any longer, but in our Lord who kept the law for us and paid the price for our sins. And yours too. That's the gospel if you'll receive it. And what was it ever good news? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 clarifies it very well when it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Differently, there's absolute and utter condemnation for those of you that are not in Christ Jesus. And so, where would you stake your claim today? Come to Christ, trust in Christ. And know the liberating freedom that comes when no condemnation are for those that are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement, no, yes, it is a requirement of righteousness. Bunyan got this better than we often do in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, oh no, but according to the Spirit. And that Spirit indwells us because of Christ. Christ perfectly kept the moral law that we might have life in Him. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you put your whole trust in Him today? Let's take a half minute and think about these things. And then we'll pray it out together.